Good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Uh, it is great to see everyone here this morning. I hope you have had a uh, great summer so far. Uh, and, and I say so far, it is just about over. I don't know if you guys realize that or not. It's, it's literally Labor Day is just around the corner. Um, and so I do hope that you have enjoyed your summer. Uh, maybe you've gone to the beach. Maybe you've had a little vacation time. Uh, maybe your vacation time just felt like more busyness. Uh, if you have small kids, that can often be the case. Um, I know that sometimes summer can feel like just one event after another, and summer can just kind of blur together, and then, you know, you realize, man, it's, it's almost over. Like, I'm saying that right now, and some of you are like, what? Um, earlier this year, when I was preparing for our summer series in the book of Colossians, God placed the word stability on my heart, which is actually why uh, we, or, or how he led us or led me to Colossians to preach through the summer. And so as we've been walking verse by verse through this beautiful letter from the Apostle Paul to the ancient church in Colossae, it's been like a process of laying deep and firm foundations of who Christ is and who we are as a result. So the name of the series uh, is Firmly Established. And it's called that for a reason. Our anchor verse for the series comes from Colossians 2, verse 6 through 7, which says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And honestly, it's been amazing to watch God strengthen and fortify our church like just the past couple of months, the way he's done this has actually been pretty amazing. Sometimes I just wish you could get my perspective on what I get to see in our church. Like I've been able to watch our church rally and root around and into these consistent, everyday, miraculous truths of the gospel. Like we, I've been able to see hard hearts soften and, and enter into real, legitimate gospel community. Like people that are far from God have received Jesus as their Savior and King. Yeah, that's awesome. And, then, and, and, look, and what's not any less awesome than that is when ordinary, everyday people become his hands and feet. And the sound of his voice and the warmth of his embrace to each other. And embracing those people far from God into this community. And then maturing and growing and strengthening and fortifying and rooting deeper and deeper into his goodness and glory and grace in the process. Look, we've seen legitimate spiritual growth happen right in front of us and in and through this church just this summer. And so I, I really honestly, like we talk about being thankful. I cannot express how thankful I am to God for this church. Amen? So it's an honor to share life in Christ with you and our city. And so here's the best part, though. All that growth and all that maturity and all that stuff that I'm talking about, it's not, this is different for some people, this is going to blow some minds. All that stuff, it's not the result of some big event. It's not because of a big flashy conference. I'm not knocking big events. Like they can be really helpful and important, 
love it, let's go, right? But oftentimes we think that we need to have some huge event in order to have our lives changed. But the truth is that the growth and goodness and health that I'm talking about has come through the simple, everyday, week-to-week, ordinary rhythms of life in Christ. See, it comes through the cracks of life, in the plain and mundane, which is where the real transformation actually happens in the first place. Even if you experience a big event or a big, quote, life-changing thing, it's applied in everyday life. And if it's not, then it wasn't actually transformational after all. Do you see this? I want you to see this. See, it happens in the home. It happens in rhythms and relationships. It happens when the music fades, but the harmony of God's grace still saturates your soul and moves you to the beat of his heart throughout the week when you wake up and when you go to bed and everywhere in between. It happens in the meantime. It happens in the quiet, in what many feel like might even be a waiting room. Like it's not necessarily the mountaintop or the deep valley that brings about the greatest transformations in our life. Yes, they do, for sure. But don't discount the winding path in between the mountaintop and the valley. Like when you're just putting one steady foot in front of the other on the way and in the meantime, just consistent. Like, that's where the real miracle often happens. He's not any less present in those routine rhythms than he is in the heights and the depths of life. But guys, when you're, when you're walking with Jesus, again, he turns the ordinary into the extraordinary. Because it's in those moments. It's, it's in the laundry room. It's in the garage or or, or on the commute to work. It's in those interactions with your spouse or your kids or your coworkers. It's at the dinner table or the bedside. It's in that conversation at community group or DNA groups or or lunch after church or, or even in the process of worship and just processing and thinking and interacting and communing with the Spirit of God. It's those moments that God really uses to firmly establish you in himself. Those are the moments that God works in and through you to refine and define and transform you and those around you. So this morning we're continuing our series, uh, our summer series through the book of Colossians called Firmly Established. And last week the passage ended with Colossians 3.17, which says, And whatever you do, say whatever, in word or deed, Do everything, say everything, in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If you've been with us, you've noticed giving thanks, kind of a theme in Colossians. It's everywhere. And so this verse actually sets up the next section Because what follows in the next few verses here are the specific instructions on what it looks like to do life in word and deed in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so Paul lists a number of sort of ordinary, like horizontal 
relationships that the Colossians lived with in their just ordinary everyday lives. He lists things like your, your relationship between wives to husbands, husbands to wives, children to parents, parents to children, servants to masters, masters to servants. And then he shows us how Jesus turns these ordinary interactions into extraordinary opportunities for worship. And the way that the ordinary becomes extraordinary is by doing everything in the name of Jesus and giving thanks. So he's saying, for the Christian... Life isn't about your husband, and life isn't about your wife, and life isn't about your kids, and life isn't about your boss, and life isn't about you, or even what they think of you. This passage is saying everything, say everything, everything is about Jesus. And just in case you missed it, he drives it all home by binding it all together with verse 23 and 24. If you drop down below this little section, he, he kind of sandwiches it in with verse 17 and then verse 23 and 24. And he says this in 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So all of these horizontal relationships with each other are informed primarily by your vertical relationship with God. So the call here is to do everything, say everything, in the name of the Lord Jesus. So what does that even mean, right? Like what does it mean to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus? Most people only think that the, that phrase, it, the, the, the name of Jesus, right? Most people think that that's sort of just the signal that your prayer is almost over. Right? In Jesus' name, amen. But it's way more than just a prayer ending. The truth is that the name of Jesus holds the power of the beginning and the end of all things. So to ask for something in the name of Jesus is to align with his will for his glory and therefore his power. So to live in word and deed in the name of the Lord Jesus, that means that we're living our lives oriented primarily around Jesus and for his glory and his kingdom. So when we pray, we're saying, if anything that I just said is not aligned with your kingdom and your glory, forget it. Forget I even said it. But if it is, and all these things, they're not for my kingdom, they're not for my glory, they're for yours. Right? Your will be done. Your kingdom come. In Virginia Beach as it is in heaven, in my family as it is in heaven, in our church as it is in heaven, on earth as it is in heaven. All for his glory. His is the kingdom and the glory. So it means you've given up on just trying to figure out what you can get away with. Right? That's not, that's not, like, what kind of relationship is that? Or, or, or you, you've kind of given up on just trying to build your own kingdom for your own glory, and you started asking how you can steward and even leverage your time, talent, and treasure, your resources in a way that most glorifies God and expands his kingdom upon the earth. That's a life lived in Jesus' name. And it's all done with a heart level thanksgiving. 
So this message isn't going to make any sense, though, if he's not your king. If Jesus is not the king of your hearts, on on a heart level, I'm talking like, I'm not talking because you prayed a prayer when you were 13. I'm talking he's your king in your heart. He dwells within you, and he's transformed you from the inside out, and he's calling you to himself. If that's not true of your life, then what we're about to read here is probably going to be pretty offensive. Like, unless the Spirit of God's given you a new heart to trust Him and follow Him, then what we're about to talk about is going to make no sense. You're going to be confused. This world does not understand what we're about to read here. You see, this is the gospel. It's the foundation upon which everything else that we do is built and digs deeply into that God became a man and he lived the life we couldn't live and he died the death we deserve to die and he conquered death in the grave and he paved the way to eternal life eternal relationship with God Almighty and that relationship begins now not just one day when we die but it begins now the moment you place your faith and hope in what Christ did for you at the cross and through the resurrection and his spirit fills you and redeems you and changes you and renews you and he begins to give you new affections new desires new hearts that long for him And so when the Spirit transforms you like this, it happens from the inside out. And it begins to change the atmosphere within you. We sang about this in our first song. It's the first song, Living Water. It says the lyrics, Holy Spirit, Holy Presence, you have changed the atmosphere here in my chest. I love that lyric. Holy wellspring, what's in store? I'm longing for more. Woo! Like that is where life in Christ truly begins. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at how these horizontal relationships are to be the overflow or even reflection of the vertical relationship we have with God. And so these horizontal relationships are often the clearest tests, actually, of our spiritual maturity. Like knowing your Bible, important. You should know your scriptures, memorize these scriptures, get in your word of God, it matters. Gathering together in community, important. Spend time in prayer, important. Service, generosity, all of that stuff, it matters. But the real indicator of where your relationship is with God is in your relationships with one another. Like you want to know how your spiritual growth is going with God? Look at your home life. Or that could be encouraging. I hope it is. Like, look at your home life. Look at your closest community. So this passage makes it clear that our horizontal relationships with each other are directly informed and even flow out of our vertical relationship with God. So if there's issues here, there's going to be issues here. Okay? But the good news is that All the issues here can find deep healing. They can find real redemption and reconciliation when this relationship, the vertical one with God, is put back in its rightful place. And so some of you may be actually walking through painful circumstances because this thing was a mess, but now this is good. Okay? 
So this isn't about comparing how your family is to other families. This is about looking to him and continually allowing God to move and grow and heal and redeem. And when I say families, maybe you're not married, maybe you feel like, maybe you're single, and this is talking about close community also, all right? Parents, all of these scenarios, friends, roommates. So this doesn't mean that the moment you become a Christian, everybody in your life is going to suddenly start acting the way you want them to, though. Okay? This is what it means. If your heart is satisfied in Jesus, it won't matter as much to you when they don't do what you want them to do. Hear that. You won't be so offended. You won't be so hurt. Because when you're satisfied and secure and assured of your acceptance in Christ, when you're beholding the glory of God and his love and his grace for you, then you're going to stop putting so much weight on those other relationships. You see, most of the issues in these horizontal relationships come because we're putting so much expectation on one another. And it's an expectation that can really only be fulfilled in Christ so conflict, frustration, offense in these like, horizontal relationships is almost always the result of unmet expectation, which leads to disappointment, disillusionment, and bitterness because they aren't living up to what only God can be in your life. So they've become more significant to you than Jesus, and now they've let you down. So when this happens, we tend to try to either fix them and call it helping, or hurt them, and call it justice. Maybe your prayers are consumed with your, you just trying to get God to fix them, rather than to help you. Well, you might say, yeah, but Pastor John, I'm, I'm not the problem. He is, or she is. But the Holy Spirit is likely whispering to you this morning one question. Why is this bothering you so much? Like, what are you looking for in him or her? What are you looking for in that person that you're not finding in me? So for the rest of our time this morning, we're going to hone in on the next two verses in Colossians 3, which are verse 18 and 19, which specifically speak actually to the relationship between husbands and wives. But this message isn't just for married people. Because marriage isn't just for married people. Now here's what I mean by that. Don't take that the wrong way. <laughs> Covenant marriage is by God's design to be a proclamation and demonstration of God's love for his church in Christ. Okay? That's why marriage is, is, is so sacred. It's not just about the people who are married. It's a part of a much bigger narrative of redemption and worship that God's been telling creation since the very beginning. So marriage is designed to demonstrate and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's designed to tell of the love that God has for his people in Christ. It's designed to preach to your children and your friends, and your family, and your neighborhood, and your city, and anyone who knows you. There's an old saying that goes, the, the best sermons are lived, not just preached. 
The best sermons are lived, not just preached. And the truth is, every one of us have experienced a sermon about the love of God through our experiences with marriage. It may be our own marriage, or our parents' marriage, or our grandparents' marriage. But make no mistake, it's a lived sermon about the love of God in Jesus Christ. Some of you have had a very ex- a positive experience with marriage, right? Which is probably why you don't have much difficulty receiving God's love for you in Christ. Think about this. If you've seen and experienced the way your dad or your grandfather self-sacrificially committed unconditionally and loved your mom or your grandmother or your family, and you've seen that your mom and your grandmother trusted and entrusted their lives to their husbands in respect and, and willingly entrusted herself to him, guys, that kind of marriage will preach. Amen? It'll preach in a way that you can't even fathom. It gets deep in you. Because it's a type and a shadow of the love God has for his church in Christ. That's why his church is called the bride of Christ. So just living in a household like that can have very real, even subconscious, spiritual impacts on you. Praise God. I praise God for the way my parents did that. They didn't do it perfectly, though. There were some issues. So what if your experience has been the opposite? What if your experience with marriage has been toxic, self-centered, and abusive? What if your experience has been controlling? What if it's been an, an insecure, controlling egomaniac that's just domineering everyone and shaming everyone into obedience? Including her husband, as if he's just another child that she has to put up with. Thought I was talking about the husband, didn't you? (laughs) See, when it gets twisted, it gets real twisted in all kinds of directions, guys. Like, why do you think this world loves to hear about all the details from broken and toxic marriages? Like, why do you think the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial was so popular? Think about this. The enemy loves to turn that stuff up over the airwaves because it preaches a false gospel about who God is. But that doesn't mean the good design of true covenant marriage is bad. And that's that's what Paul's presenting here in a very brief form in the next two verses. So whether you've had an amazing experience with marriage or a horrible one, or likely in this world something in between, Okay, The only thing that matters is the ultimate marriage on display through the way Jesus Christ loves his church. That's the substance. Everything else is just a shadow designed to point to the substance. And if it doesn't, let it go. Easier said than done though, right? So turn with me to Colossians 3, verse 18 through 19. Let's read through how the Apostle Paul specifically says we are to do marriage in the name of the Lord Jesus with thanksgiving. So here's what I want you to get this morning. Covenant marriage is designed by God to be a daily demonstration and proclamation of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. Now, if you've done this and are doing this perfectly in your marriage... You don't need to be here. And if you think that, sit back down. You definitely need to be here, okay? 
Because marriage is designed also to be an opportunity to share and demonstrate grace. That's part of its design. Amen? Colossians 3, verse 18 through 19. says this, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So again, if you've had toxic experiences with marriage, which in one way or another in this fallen world we all have, then that word submit may carry some baggage that needs redemption. But again, that doesn't mean the framework here is bad. It just means this world has twisted and exploited it into something that it was never designed to be. So let's do some untwisting this morning, okay? I want you to see this morning that far from being a passage to be ignored or even apologized for, this verse is a beautiful representation of God's relentless love and grace and goodness. So what does this word submit really mean? What's he saying here? Well, instead of letting our culture interpret it, Let's let Scripture interpret Scripture, okay? Look at Paul's letter to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19 through 21. Ephesians 5, 19 through 21 says this, verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Sound familiar? If you've been walking to Colossians with us, that should sound familiar. Because it's the same line of thought, even the similar wording that Paul uses in his letter to the Colossians. He makes it clear that as God's covenant community, he's talking to the whole church here. As God's covenant community who have their security and their value firmly established in Christ, they're then to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So he's saying that they are to consider one another before themselves, to operate in an unselfish, other-oriented, others-oriented, me-for-you, my-life-for-your-life kind of way. This is... After all, the difference between a contract and a covenant, right? A contract is designed to protect yourself in a deal. It's self-centered completely, self-oriented. But a covenant is designed to protect the other person. A covenant is a selfless, others-oriented kind of deal. That's why a true marriage before God is a covenantal marriage. It's covenant, not contract. The world is contract. They can have it. True marriage is covenantal, Okay? That's why the church is made up of God's covenant people, not contract people. And so the only way that you can be in covenant with others is if you're secure in your covenant with God. Vertical informs horizontal. Okay? So that's why the church is made up of his covenant people. So if others take advantage of that covenant or don't reciprocate the love or sacrificial generosity that you show them, it's okay. Because you're secure in him. He's your firm foundation. You're firmly established in him. Now, that doesn't mean that you get to take advantage of each other. Because you know what? You're still going to have to answer to him. I'm going to talk about that. But the, the, the point here is that Jesus says, I have a new mission for you. But it's not about your glory. And it's not about getting others 
or, or, or what you're trying to do and trying to get others to treat you in a certain way or think of you in a certain way. That's the mission of a, of a world that's operating on the pride-shame spectrum. That's a tormented way to live. His mission for you is about his glory and finding satisfaction in Christ alone because God is most glorified in you when you're most satisfied in him, as John Piper famously correctly puts it, right? So take your eyes off of others or even yourself and place your eyes on the love and the grace of Jesus Christ and then invite others to experience what you've experienced in him. This is Christianity. So this is the kind of new community that Jesus calls us to as his people this is what covenantal gospel community looks like. And so it looks like a people that are so enamored by the love and grace of God that their primary mission in life is to then invite others to behold him and to rest in him and to build his kingdom, not their own. So to submit to others who have this mission is to then come underneath the mission that he has placed on their lives. And by doing so, you're supporting and pointing them to their great Savior and King. Think about this. You are literally coming under the mission from God on one another's lives and supporting it. Submission. You see this? Now think about this. Look at verse 19 and 20. Just in case you're like, I don't think that's what it means because my, my worldview has been twisted by culture. Look at verse 19 and 20. Right before he says submit to one another, he tells them to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he says right before he says to submit to one another. In other words, guys, when you do this, you're pointing one another to who Jesus is and his purpose and his calling that's on their life. That's coming under the mission he's declared over them. That's supporting them in it and pointing them to it. Literally, submission out of respect and reverence for Jesus. It's serving and loving them as a way of serving and loving Jesus. It doesn't mean you're ruling over each other. It means you're lovingly pointing one another to the one who does. His name is Jesus. And he's really good at it. Right? So this is God's call to his church, which he calls the bride of Christ. So we're to demonstrate and proclaim the way God loves us through the way we love and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So if this is how all of God's covenant people are to live, how much more then should this be applied to covenant marriage? right? Again, the relationship between a husband and a wife is designed by God to be a demonstration and proclamation to all creation of the relationship between Christ and his church. Ephesians 5, 32, the apostle Paul explicitly says this, this mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In other words, your marriage is about way more than just you and your spouse. It's why marriage is so sacred. It's why it's under so much attack in this fallen and twisted world, right? Like, hear this. Instead of just being upset or even surprised that the devil does devilish things and attacks the sanctity of marriage, like, let's just lean into the beauty of God's good design for covenant marriage and let genuine goodness of God drown out the counterfeit. 
doesn't mean you don't talk about it. But it does mean don't fix your eyes on the mess and miss the message he's calling you to proclaim right where you're at. And so when we do this, we see in God's good design for covenant marriage that there are separate roles that husbands and wives play. One is not inferior or superior to the other, but they are different, which shouldn't be surprising, right? Since this is the kind of relationship Jesus has himself within the Trinity. Remember, God is Trinity, right? He is three persons in one nature. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The, God, the, the Father is not superior or inferior to the Son, the Son is not superior or inferior to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not superior or inferior to the Father. And yet, they do often have different roles in the relationship. There's extreme unity in there, in the diversity. Do you see this? Oneness and yet not sameness. There's a principle here. So as God has made both man and woman in his image, we see that neither man nor woman in themselves, independent of one another are the full image of who God is, but they're a complement to one another in the way they are unified and yet diverse in their expression of the image of God. And so we see that Jesus, the Son of God in the flesh, submits to God the Father in all things. Just read the Gospels. Over and over and over again, he makes that very clear. But that doesn't make him inferior to God that would actually be heresy. Jesus is not inferior to the Father. Likewise, as a bride submits to her husband, it doesn't mean she's inferior to him. Any more than Jesus is inferior to the Holy Spirit or the Father. That would preach a false gospel about who God is and what submission actually means. So when Colossians 3.18 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, it has nothing to do with inferiority or value. Ephesians 5 sheds even more light on it. What Paul means by the word submission. Look at Ephesians 5, verse 22 through 24. He writes this to the Ephesian church. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now if your husband is a gentle and godly and wise spiritual leader who never does anything wrong and he's perfect in all of his ways, simple, right? Like if love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are just oozing out of your husband 24-7 without fail, no problem. This is a no-brainer, right? But I'm going to go on a limb and say that's not always the case, right? And if you're single and you're holding out for a husband who's like that at all times, it either means your standards are too high or you're called to be single for the rest of your life. And seriously, that's great. Nothing wrong with that. But I'm serious. Fantastic. Marriage is a calling, not a given, okay? That's important. Because the only one who can meet those expectations is Jesus. And see, it requires contentment in Christ alone to be single. Right? Some of you single people are learning that. But it requires contentment in Christ alone to be married too. 
Okay? That goes for men and women because your husband is not Jesus. And praise God for that. Release him from that expectation and place it where it belongs on the real Jesus. He can handle it. He's really good at it. Notice verse 22 doesn't say submit to your husbands as the Lord. It says as unto the Lord. It's a big difference. Verse 18 also says wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So that means that you're not to submit to sinful behavior. And to do so would not be godly submission. It would be catering to something that has pulled your husband away from his mission and away from his king. That's the opposite of true submission if you indulge that. That's not loving him well. That's not submitting to God's call in his life. If he's operating in unrepentant sin, then to submit to God's call in your husband's life is to keep your eyes uh, on, on Jesus, right? To submit to God's call in his life means that you're lovingly and consistently pointing your husband back to his Savior and King and who he truly is. And you can do that in an encouraging way. So that doesn't necessarily mean, again, you're just rebuking and chastising him all the time and being like, gosh, you're really bad at this whole Christian thing. You're such a... No. Like, it, it, it doesn't mean that. The truth is, is that the more that you, more than anyone else in his life, have an opportunity to lovingly speak truth over your husband and to build him up in the Lord and point him in the right direction. You see this? And so the same goes for him to you. And building up may also mean pointing out that those sinful foundations are rotten. That's all part of your role. If you're afraid to do that, then you're not submitting to your husband as unto the Lord You've submitted to him as Lord. That's important. That's toxic for you and for him and to all whom your marriage is preaching to. Again, to submit to him as to the Lord as a way of serving God, not in the place of God. So if you're ever pressured to disobey God or put your family in danger, do not submit to that. Speak against it. And if you need help, ask. None of this is instructing you to just quietly endure abuse. In both situations, enabling abuse is neither loving to the abuser nor honoring to God. It's okay to say that's not okay. So the point Paul's making here is that in all that we do, we do in the name of Jesus. It's all, first and foremost, an offering to God as a demonstration and proclamation of his love for us and our love for him. And so this isn't about men dominating women and catering their, to their every selfish desire. Remember, this is covenantal, which means selfless. This is really important, okay? This verse, verse 18, it's never meant to be used as a manipulation tactic. It's not a weapon to jab your wife with, Right? This is her verse to obey, not yours to demand. I feel like I need to let that one hang there for a bit. Okay? The call here is for husbands to make this easy for your wives. To operate in such a way that this isn't a struggle but a joy. Which leads then to Colossians verse, uh, 3 verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. 
So notice there's a shift here. Now he's talking to the men, right? Directly. It's a specific and direct shift for a reason. So, men, listen up. Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, at first, this may feel like a no-brainer, but it's not. Actually, especially in the Greek culture of the day, where household codes were focused more on keeping everyone in line with the ruler of the household. Love wasn't actually part of the equation at all in that culture. Wives in this society were actually legal property of the husband, so it's important to understand that the dynamic Paul is bringing here is very redemptive to what covenant marriage truly is. He says, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. She's not your roommate. She's not your buddy. Love her with intentionality. Ephesians 5, 25 takes it a step further even. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Like, what? Think about that. Think about what that means. That, that, this is what spiritual leadership and headship actually means. It's servant leadership. It's sacrificial in nature. It's not self-serving, ego-boosting, controlling, and domineering. She doesn't exist to make you feel good about yourself. Yours is a role of service. And anyone who's ever operated in real leadership position knows the burden of responsibility. It's real. Headship means that when it comes to the godly direction and health of your family, husbands, the buck stops with you. It means you can't shuck responsibility for the well-being of your family onto your wife and then blame her if things go south. It's your responsibility. Extreme ownership. Anybody read that book, Jocko Willink? It's a leadership book by a man named Jocko Willink, and it gets to the heart of this principle. To my knowledge, he's not a Christian, but when a principle is true, it's true. And in this book, he actually draws this out, and he says this, don't make excuses. Don't blame any other person or any other thing. Get control of your ego. Don't hide your delicate pride from the truth. Take ownership of everything in your world, the good and the bad. And I would say that that's only possible in the grace of God. I would say that, that the only way that the world operates on that is the pride-shame spectrum. The grace of God is the only thing that can actually allow you to operate in this in a healthy way. You see, this is what headship within the family actually means. The issues in your marriage and family aren't the fault of the school system. They're not the fault of the Navy or your boss or your wife. Spiritual headship means it's on you. Pastor Tony Evans put it as bluntly as I think anybody could possibly put it. And he said this, spiritual headship is God telling the wife to duck so he can punch the husband. You gotta get the image. And when I first saw, I heard that, I, I, I was like, man, that's kind of harsh. Like, is that, that's a bit harsh. And then I realized that God is a jealous God. And he's called you, if you are called to be a husband, he has called you to steward his beloved. And so when you, if you think that's harsh, then love your wives and don't be harsh with them. This is what headship is. 
Matt Chandler once described headship saying that if his marriage and family were uh, like a mess and, and, and there were issues going on and, and Jesus were to show up physically at his house and rang the doorbell and his wife answered the door, then Jesus would say, hi, it's good to see you. Where's Matt? Right? Like, where's John? We need to talk. Now hear me. This doesn't mean, wives, that you have no responsibility. Okay? Acts 5 actually tells a pretty intense story of a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. It's a husband and wife who decided to lie together and deceive God's people for their own benefit, and God struck them down dead, both of them. New Testament, okay? The husband first. But then, when it became clear that the wife was in on it too, he dropped her also. That's one of those scenarios where Sapphira needed to speak up and say to her husband, that's not okay. But she didn't. And she was held responsible along with him. So spiritual headship is servant leadership. It's the bearing of the burden and the responsibility of the deciding vote. Contrary to the opinions of power-hungry world that we live in, that's not actually an enviable position. It should be a stewardship that we hold in fear and trembling. It's a stewardship that we're accountable to King Jesus to carry out in his name and for his glory. It is an honor. And it is something we can do with thanksgiving in our hearts. But it is serious. So let's not squander it on self-ambition, but instead follow Jesus in laying our lives down for our wives. And insofar as we fall short of that, Receive his grace and know that condemnation has been poured out. His wrath has been poured out at the cross. And so it allows you to continue to step up and walk this thing out. So this doesn't mean, again, laying out our lives for our wives. It doesn't mean just being willing to take a bullet for her. It means being willing to die to yourself for her. And some of you would probably be more willing to take a bullet than lose an argument, right? But spiritual headship means putting her needs and even preferences above your own. I've learned a lot in this area from um, a man named J.D. Greer. And he said this. He said, if I am serving my wife like Christ served the church, that means that in 90% of places where we disagree, we're going to end up doing what she wants because most decisions are not spiritual leadership decisions. They are preferences. And mine should always be second to hers. C.S. Lewis put it like this. Men, in the marriage relationship, you wear a crown. But the crown you wear is first and foremost one of thorns. So this is the kind of spiritual leadership God's calling husbands and fathers to step into in our society. When these roles are stewarded well for God's glory, it changes everything in the family, in the church, and even in society at large. So many men squander that role of spiritual leadership because you think you have to be an expert in order to lead. Guys, that's just your ego talking. Like That's just that pride-shame spectrum drawing you away from your God-given calling. This isn't just a call to be an expert. This is a call to be intentional in love and sacrificial in the way you point your wife and family to Jesus. That's how we lead. Husbands, the number one mission God has given you on this earth is to make disciples who make disciples of your family. That's your primary target, okay? Everything else is secondary to that. 
and the churches here, Risen Church, exist to help you partner or, or to partner with you in that mission, right? Like to share life in Christ with each other, our city and beyond. Like this is what we do to partner with you in that mission, but we're not here to replace you in that mission. There's a difference, okay? I love community groups. I love DNA groups. I love our kids' ministry and all of that. It's so important, but listen to me. None of that can ever replace the role of a husband and a father consistently, lovingly, gently washing his family in the word of God and asking them how their relationship with Jesus is and praying over them. It's huge. Guys, all that we do at Risen is designed to partner with you in that great commission that starts with your own family. And I'm not telling you it's easy. It's a struggle. I struggle. There's warfare surrounding this. You know why? It matters. It matters. I've shared this statistic before, but I'm going to share it again because I think it drives home this call for men to lead and love like Jesus. Studies show that if a child receives Christ as Lord and Savior, there's a 3.5% chance that everyone else in their household will follow. If a mom receives Christ, there's a 17% chance that everyone else will follow. But if dad receives Christ, 93% that everything, everyone else in the family will receive Christ also. That's an updated statistic, by the way, since the one that I. Now, as a wife, it could be easy to hear this and then think, well, if he would lead like this, then I would submit, no problem. Or maybe if your husband's, maybe, well, if she would submit or just show me some respect, then I could lead. But there's that blame shifting again. Right? See, it doesn't say wives when you decide your husband is sufficiently mature in his spiritual leadership capacity, then submit. That's not what it says. This isn't about that. In fact, it's not even about him. You know who it's about? Jesus. This is a design thing. This is about a trusting him thing. This is about inviting your husband to step into that role that he was designed for. Try, trying to, like, like, try thanking him for the way he points you and your family to Jesus and then affirm the way that he does operate in that role. I promise that's going to go a long way. The truth is, is that your submission to him is the way you help him step into that role. Likewise, men, don't wait for her to submit or respect you before you love her self-sacrificially. But I'm not going to promise, I'm not going to promise that if you lay your life down in service to your wife that she's going to respect you or submit to you. She may not ever. That ship may have sailed. She might die in her own bitterness. I pray that she doesn't. And the truth is, is she probably will if you love her and you lay your life down. But I want you to understand something. Jesus laid his life down for so many people who will die in bitterness. And he did it willingly, and he did it for the joy that was set before him. And he did it for the, ultimately, that joy ultimately is the glory of the Father. Okay? So this is worship. Like she, like, she may exploit you. She may walk all over you. 
that didn't stop Jesus from laying his life down for you, right? So the point I'm trying to make here is that the reason husbands are called to lay their lives down for their wives and the reason wives are called to submit to their husbands isn't so that love and respect will be reciprocated. It's because it's fitting in the Lord. It's because it's the way Jesus has called us to worship. And the only way it's possible is if our eyes and our hearts are firmly fixed upon the love of God in Jesus Christ. Because no matter what, you're going to behold him. And you're going to become more and more in love with him when you do this. Because you're going to let go of what you're placing on them. And you're going to find that satisfaction and that joy in Christ alone. Because the only way to lead and love the way Jesus does is if we're led and loved by Jesus. Like this is our proclamation and demonstration. This is grace because whether it's returned or not, that's a lived sermon about the all-satisfying sufficiency of the love and the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And that will preach. And again, I'm still learning how to do this well. It's not easy, but it is good. And I'll tell you this, the longer I'm married the more I realize that I'm not just falling deeper in love with my wife, I'm falling deeper in love with the way Jesus loves my wife. And I pray he can help me better show and tell her about it. This is marriage, guys. So I'm going to close here with another quote from J.D. J.D. Greer. He says this, Marriage is not first and foremost making you happy in a perfect mate but making you holy by teaching you to love like Jesus. It is gospel reenactment. Marriages that fall apart do not do so because couples fall out of love with each other, but because they fall out of fellowship with Jesus. Now, in a moment, we're going to celebrate communion together. And I want to encourage you this morning that if you're here with your spouse, that you pray with each other and take communion together, and that you pray with each other, and you just thank God for the way he uses your spouse to show you his love, to show you his goodness. I just want to encourage you to take that time, and if your spouse isn't here, I, I, I want to encourage you to pray for them and ask God to help you do this well, okay? And maybe you need to reconcile with them about something. Let him bring that up in your heart and do it. Do it here. Do it before you take communion. Do it over communion. What a great opportunity, right? This is healthy. This is good. This is God's call in our lives. And this is all ultimately about Jesus. If you're single, worship him in this, okay? Let's pray.